Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Millions of gig workers, janitors, home care workers, construction workers, and truckers could be considered employees rather than independent contractors under a final rule announced by the Labor Department. The rule effectively expands the reach of federal labor laws that require employers to extend certain benefits and protections to workers classified as employees. Those include the right to the minimum wage, overtime pay, unemployment insurance, and social security benefits, which employers are not required to provide to independent contractors. According to Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su, the rule will, quote, help create a level playing field for businesses, protect workers from being denied the right to fair pay, and affirm the vital role true independent contractors play in our economy by allowing them to thrive, close quote. The rule would take effect on March 11th. Walter, is this news or phone news? Well, it's bad news. You know, it's a good thing, obviously, to want to make sure workers are protected. But it's pretty clear that the Biden administration is much more interested in trying to sort of, on the one hand, get like better tax information and withholding so that it's actually much easier for the government to take your money if you are an employee. But also it's a um, it's a way of helping labor unions. Again, not a bad thing to help the labor unions in general, but I think to do this by diminishing the freedom of people to organize their lives in their own way, have alternative ways of making a living, is not a good idea. What they should be doing instead is actually thinking through the whole question of how do you enable gig workers to get things like good retirement and other things, 401k plans? Is there a way to simplify the whole system of benefits so that instead of, uh, you know, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to comply with the various District of Columbia labor standards for the The lady who comes in uh, for four hours a week to clean my apartment, it's really a nightmare. And it costs a lot of money. I have to go through a payroll company, which is not cheap, et cetera, just to try to do the right thing. And I'm constantly getting bizarre notices. You know, this sort of bureaucracy creep is the opposite of where a modern economy needs to be going. And so the real news here is that the Biden administration is hell-bent on trying to slow down the American transition to a more flexible and dynamic economy in the 21st century. I saw one figure that something like 15% of the total U.S. workforce are independent contractors. Is, do, you, do you see this as kind of an election year ploy? Or has this long been an ambition of... Well, you know, every time this has gone to the voters or, or frequently has gone to the voters in referendums and so on, they actually vote against these policies. Even in California, I think a referendum trying to basically turn all the Uber drivers into, into paid employees went down in flames. So it's it's not a political move in the sense of trying to win votes from ordinary people. Yes, it's a political move in terms of trying to give something to large constituencies that want to support the Biden administration. So I'd say it's a campaign finance political move rather than a voter populist political move. All right, our second story. Argentina's markets, which soared after President Javier Malay took office a month ago, are now giving the libertarian leader a dose of reality, with bond prices slipping, the peso weakening again, and investors wary of the government's new debt auctions, according to Reuters. 
The splash of cold water from investors after an initial honeymoon underscores the huge challenge facing Malay as he looks to tamp down inflation heading towards 200%, head off social unrest, rebuild depleted reserves, and rescue a $44 billion program with the IMF. He also faces pushback to his reform bill aiming to privatize state entities and raising taxes in Congress, where his libertarian coalition is well short of a majority. Is this news or faux news? Well, I don't know. Is it news when foolish investor expectations about Argentina are disappointed? If so, that's about a hundred-year-old continuing soap opera. You know, it used to be that a bank teller would steal the bank's money and then flee to Argentina. Now the bankers just send it to Argentina where they keep the money. Argentina should be a very rich and successful country, but Argentine political culture continues to to sort of shy away from the steps that would make that possible. Malay clearly wants to head in the right direction, but there's such a preponderance of institutional forces and his own uh, personality is a, you know, is a little bit unconventional, let's just say. I think uh, what he's got five clone dogs that he's very fond of. So he may be the world leader with the greatest fondness for dogs since Frederick the Great. <laughs> who by, I think was buried with his dogs, not wanting to be buried with humans. I don't know that whether Malay is going to be able to pull it off. I certainly hope he does. And it would be a very good thing to try to cooperate with him wherever we can. But Argentina, it didn't dig itself into this hole overnight. It's unlikely that it's going to climb out with one simple triumphant flourish. I guess a related question there. I mean, looking back over the last century in Argentina, how many of its problems do you chalk up to the mismanagement and incompetence of its governing officials in particular versus how much responsibility lies with the choices of Argentine voters who seem to have gotten at least quite a few of the policies they've asked for? I guess who's to blame if Malay ultimately fails? Well, what was it that uh, H.L. Mencken, I think, said? Democracy means letting the people get what they want, good and hard. <laughs> um, and uh, I think there's a sense in which the Ar Argentine political culture really does believe a lot of things that are not true. But it's not simply that the voters are stupid. You know, people who look at politics from that perspective, I think, often miss the fact that people are making what look to be the best choices from a limited menu. And Argentina has long had a problem of the sort of very, very wealthy oligarchy that is rooted in the sort of agricultural and mineral resources of the country with an immigrant working class that for a long time, the, the sort of oligarchs denied any meaningful participation in society or the economy. The Peronism is, is kind of a movement of these people, a sort of a tribal, in a sense, movement of the have-nots against some, you know, rather stupid and in some cases feudal-minded haves. And the result is, is, is not really good. Everybody could have been better off if they had made wiser choices, but the options weren't there. All right, final story of the week. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has released more than 2.3 million migrants into the United States at the southern border under the Biden administration, according to The Washington Post allowing in the vast majority of migrant families and some groups of adults since January 2021. The figures, published by the Department of Homeland Security for the first time, illustrate the extent to which CBP officials have been overwhelmed by the volume of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Is it news or phone news? 
Oh, it's news, all right. And it's news that could put Donald Trump back in the White House. It's absolutely insane to sort of essentially throw up your hands at controlling the border. The political backlash from this, the grievance politics uh, could poison American life for a generation. It's an extraordinary act of political incompetence, strategic incompetence, moral blindness on the part of this administration. And if you look around the world, the bitter conflicts that endure for generations when people feel that migration has been illegitimately managed. In a sense, that's the Israel-Palestine dispute for you. It's the Rohingya problem in, uh, in Burma. These senses that undemocratically or illegally, the establishment has allowed millions of people into a country who, who weren't born there in a way that, that marginalizes or reduces the, the standing or the rights of people who are already in the country is political poison. Donald Trump would not have been elected in 2016 if Barack Obama had managed the border, I think. And I, I believe that if Trump comes back in, in 2024, this will be a, a primary cause of it. You know, for the Biden people to talk about the election as a contest over the future of democracy, while they are essentially refusing to enforce very important democratically passed laws and controls on immigration is not only hypocrisy and stupidity, it really is preparing the way for everything that they say they fear and hate. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. A lot of grim news out of Latin America this week, Walter. Previously, relatively safe countries like Costa Rica, Chile, Ecuador have seen their homicide rates skyrocket in the last five years, according to The Economist. But Ecuador in particular is descending into chaos with riots and explosions in several prisons this week and the president ordering the military to neutralize two dozen gangs. In Chile, police are taking on thousands of, quote, narco funerals where violence has broken out on the outskirts of Santiago. A recent spate of mass killings and cartel violence in general are the number one issue in this year's election in Mexico, where less than 4% of criminal investigations are ever solved. We already talked about the problems facing Argentina as well. You wrote a column this week about Argentina, and you argued that the United States itself seems to be going down the Peronist road with both Biden and Trump favoring elements of state planning, industrial protection, union favors, tariffs, and so on. And that combined with the levels of violence in the U.S. that in some ways make us more like Mexico and Brazil than, say, Britain or Germany or France. All this made me think about the ways in which the United States more generally is a Western hemispheric society more than a Western society in the European sense. Can you talk about the ways in which America is maybe more like its southern neighbors than like Europe and, and why that matters? Yeah, sure. This this is a really important point, and it's one that I think a lot of Americans miss, but also people in other parts of the world. The American societies as a group, with Canada as a bit of an outlier, are societies that are just radically different from European ones. They were produced, uh, you know, this sort of ethnic mix that's there is a mix of the indigenous people here before European settlement. Africans brought over in uh, as slaves and slave persons during the that era. 
and then immigration, waves of immigration from different parts, different cultures of Europe. They tended to all have this American experience of the frontier is one that many other countries, including Brazil, has marked their character. You go to Argentina, you find that a lot of their sort of culture and legends are about gauchos, i.e. cowboys on the pampas, wide open spaces, fighting for honor and... uh, and so on. Um, social controls were weak pretty much everywhere. These societies were were immigrants of, of people who rejected or were uncomfortable with the sort of stable social mores and controls that were common in Europe. Often the people who came to the Western Hemisphere were free thinkers who were, you know, not particularly engaged with the rigid clerical hierarchies of, of the West. I think there was a time when Jewish Orthodox rabbis wanted to forbid Jewish immigration to the Western Hemisphere because you couldn't practice Judaism in the sort of wild frontier conditions. And then these societies of people who haven't lived together for hundreds or thousands of years or whatever, and don't have necessarily a deep common root of culture. They come together in very unusual, informal ways with culture clashes, mixing of different cultures, ideas, values, religions, Almost always the second generation of people living here in the Western Hemisphere, you know, there's a huge gap between them and the world that their parents brought with them from Europe or wherever they come from. So all of these societies in general are much more violent than any place in Europe. Their politics tend to be quite lively. Donald Trump, uh, Huey Long, people like this would be very, very familiar figures to voters south of the border. And there's also a kind, you know, states tend to be much weaker here. Even when you have a dictatorship, as you often do in some Latin American countries, the state has much less kind of day-to-day control on, on what's happening on the ground. Just have this thing of elites tend to be in all of these countries, tend to be incredibly focused on Europe, on European civilization, European culture, European political ideas. But the masses of the people in general are not. And you can see this very vividly in South America, where you have this kind of Hispanic upper class that that looks, you know, looks back to Spain and where it's increasingly kind of globalized, looking to international culture, the U.S. And then you have people up in the mountains who who speak an indigenous language like Quechua and are completely alienated from all of that stuff. Patriotism in these countries is also a bit of an artificial ideological construct in that it's not necessarily something that comes natural. It's built so that Argentine identity has to be built. You know, what is Costa Rican national identity? It's uh, it's something that Costa Ricans have achieved, in a sense, rather than something that they simply accept. So these it's a set of opportunities and problems that are radically different from those of Europe. I can't tell you what a high percentage of American social commentary basically consists of people, intellectuals mostly, wringing their hands, why aren't we more like Europe? And maybe in some ways it would be nice if we were, but there are hundreds of years of history 
pushing us in a different direction. I would love to see American social commentators and thinkers engage more with the reality of Western hemispheric society. Uh, the average American knows almost nothing about, you know, sort of considers the Rio Grande to be something, you know, the end of the known world. And beyond that, who knows what's going on? In fact, what happens down there has a lot more to do with what happens here often than what's happening in England or France. I remember when I spent some time in the State Department and you'd encounter a lot of, you know, very bright foreign service officials who had genuinely accepted, you know, everything we've been talking about in the last five to 10 years about the importance of the Indo-Pacific and the continuing importance of the Middle East and Europe kind of getting downgraded to, you know, maybe number three in terms of the strategic theaters in the world. But then you'd often find how much more important the opinions of, of their European counterparts were than almost anyone else on the planet. And I think it's the habit of kind of seeing a reflection of America in Europe as opposed to anywhere else in the world. I What you're describing seems like, a, you know, if if there's a political official or an ambitious person in public life who could grasp this seems like a big political opportunity. Is there any political official in American history that you think did understand this well and was able to kind of get some amount of political power out of it? Well, there's Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, who we notice in some polls is actually getting a majority or at least a plurality of votes from Western Hemisphere voters from south of the Rio Grande. So, um, yes, I think so. A lot of local politicians, sort of any kind of transgressive demagogue in some ways, is just, you know, turning their back. Andrew Jackson was somebody who saw it. But I think, you know, honestly, I think uh, John Adams saw it, too, and some John Quincy Adams in some ways. And the notion that we need to be sort of gain respectability by signing up to European ideals or European methods. Look, I'd be the last person, as somebody who's very much educated in the Western classical tradition, I'd be the last person to want to walk away from all of that. But you do have to understand that Americans approach it from a different place than Europeans do. And in some ways, I think this actually contributes to America's ability to be a, a significant global player in that we're kind of a swing state. That is, on some ways, we sort of swing with the Europeans, but in some ways, we kind of swing with the developing world, demographically, culturally. We also, you know, the Europeans, where population is stagnant or declining virtually everywhere, tend to be very kind of stand pat and small c conservative. You know, nobody in the south of France wants anything at all to change ever except maybe that they get bigger checks for less work, which is completely understandable. But there are a lot of poor people all over the world who want growth and opportunity and, and need it. And American political society kind of responds to both of those forces, sometimes in a messy and dysfunctional way, but that's life. So I, I, I think America's having one foot in Europe, but the other foot outside of it is ultimately an advantage, but we need to understand it and learn how to work with it. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's close on the tip of the week.
Your recently return from not only Argentina and Brazil, Walter, but also from the Galapagos Islands. It's not an easy destination for the vast majority of our listeners to get to, but for the lucky few who might make it there one day, what's your number one Galapagos travel tip? The number one tip about the Galapagos is go. <laughs> it is really a remarkable place. And I mean, you know, if you if you don't want to swim with playful sea lions who actually enjoy engaging with you, well, then don't go. <laughs> if you don't want to have sea turtles all around you so that when you sort of try to, you know, turn to avoid one, you you risk running into another. Well, don't go. If you don't want to see penguins flash by you underwater in pursuit of their prey, don't go. But if you like those things, if you like nature and you like seeing how to really a remarkable degree, the country of Ecuador has been able to integrate the needs of tourism with the responsibility to preserve the thing that the tourists are coming to see. I think the Galapagos are, are really a, a great success story. It's not perfect, but it really is remarkable. So by all means, go. All right, there you have it. Thanks to Robert Scaramucci for producing this week's episode. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a review. <laughs>